Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK all by myself. Well, not quite all by myself. Ian Enright, our producer, is here. So I'm almost all by myself uh, because he has his back to me and he doesn't even crack a smile at any of the things that we do here. (laughs) Meanwhile, (laughs) spread across Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks at Georgetown. Hi, Hi, Rosa. At Georgetown University, we have Mika Oyang, who's new to us, but uh, a real uh, um, a delight to have her join us here, who's the vice president for national security programs at Third Way. Um, hello. Yay! Yay! Hello, Mika. And we have Laura Rosenberger, who is uh, a, an old favorite here, who is the director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy uh, and is also a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund. Hi, Laura. Hey, David. And... In London, England, <laughs> at the center of where everything used to happen, Corey <laughs> Shockey, who's something like a major general or something like that at the Institute. <laughs> I'm hearing Gilbert and Sullivan in the background, David. That happens in London all the time, by the way. But we're glad to have you back. Last week, you were in Brussels eating the chocolates, as one does in Brussels. And Laura was there, too. How was that, guys? It was fantastic. It was for the German Marshall Fund's Brussels mania. Um, and... Uh, Laura was showcasing the great good work of the Alliance for Securing Democracy, and I got the privilege of talking about the good work that they do and how to think about uh, the challenge of free societies dealing with hostile societies trying to interfere in our internal uh, undertakings. You mean the White House? (laughs) (laughs) And... And and Laura, was, did you have an equally good time? I mean, you can be honest. Yes, it was. Uh, first of all, it's just always fun to um, get to see the sparkle of the tiara of optimism um, in person. And it was sparkling very strongly. Um, Corey um, contributed several points of strong optimism in the course of the conversation. So that's always a nice, uplifting thing. Um, and it was wonderful to have her, um, as always, contributing thoughts on the work that we are doing on figuring out how we can strengthen democratic institutions against the authoritarian powers that are trying to undermine them. And we had some great conversations thinking with European partners and allies, how we can be collaborating more and working together more and sharing experiences more um, to mount a unified defense of our democracies across the Atlantic space. 
So very useful conversation. Well, it's great. And it's also great to know that Corey is out there with the tiara of optimism. We've, of course, had <laughs> lots of inquiries from the producers of The Crown who are trying to think of what their <laughs> sequel will be. And and we think the tiara is natural next step, the Corey Shockey story. So, uh, David, I had to do an Intelligence Squared debate uh, about whether humanitarian intervention does more harm than good. And the moderator of the Intelligence Squared debate introduced me as the deep state radio wearer of the tiara of optimism. Right. And then you True said, and right. And then you're like, and I hate humanitarian aid. I'm against it. Let them suffer. I assure you I was bad for the brand, David. Yeah, well, no, you that has never been the case. All right, so I want to start out with what has clearly been the biggest sort of shock development and in, 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 in certainly in U.S. foreign policy in the course of the past week. Um, and I'm going to go around to each of you, and I'd like your sort of 60 to 90 second take on it, and then we'll have a bit of a discussion. But of course, what I mean is the um, sudden decision by the President of the United States to accept an invitation from Kim Jong-un to have a summit uh, at some point in the future to discuss the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, at least ostensibly to discuss that, um, which caught everybody in the White House, everybody in the White House press corps, everybody in Washington, most of the people in Korea, everybody in Japan, a lot of the people in China, uh, by surprise. Um, whether it caught the Russians by surprise remains to be seen. But it certainly was a big shock to everybody. And I think people are still trying to make sense of this, what's good in it, what's bad in it, what's risky in it. And let me turn to you first, Mika, and ask you, what's your take? So, like everyone, I was really surprised by it. I think that one of the challenges that I really see in this is that this is the president essentially acting as a one-man band. And I think that has two really potentially negative um, consequences here. One is that he's not being advised by the best thinking of the U.S. government. He doesn't have a lot of good, strong advisors helping him figure out where to go and consulting with them before he takes these steps forward. So internally, I think that's a big problem in the negotiations because he's going to be erratic and unpredictable. But then on the geopolitical level, I think that this is a real problem because when you look at our Asian allies in the region, the reason that the U.S. plays such a strong security role in the region is that we are the guarantor of stability. And we, our military presence there says to everyone, as long as we're here, things are calm, war is not going to break out. But this president, by behaving so unpredictably and erratically, is suggesting to the rest of our Asian allies, hey, buckle up, it's going to be bumpy. And by comparison, then China starts looking better and better as a more sober, stable ally in the region. And I think for the long term, this have real negative implications for American leadership in the region. Thank you. Laura? I would associate myself with all of Mika's points. Um, you know, I would also say a couple things. I worked on North Korea in both the Bush administration and the Obama administration. And as Corey rightly reminded um, in, a, in an exchange that we had on this topic um, over the weekend in Brussels, um, you know, the Obama administration didn't manage to, to figure out this challenge, nor, frankly, did the Bush administration, um, which is why we are where we are today. So, 
you know, I, any points I offer here, I offer with the humility of being a part of, of attempts that did not succeed um, to, to denuclearize the peninsula. All that throat clearing being we're said. Not, I, I have to say, we're not going to blame you personally, Laura. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I appreciate that. Um, but I needed to preempt Corey mostly. Um, but, I, uh, you know, what I would say is a couple things. Um, you know, I actually was part of the six party talks um, process uh, negotiating team during the, the Bush administration. And what I would say about, you know, there's been this question, the, the question has sort of been framed around, you know, the, the to meet or not to meet Trump-Kim summit um, as, well, diplomacy or not, negotiations or not. What I would say is agreeing on the spot to a summit with a foreign, you know, with a dictator who's not met with a single foreign leader previously, um, who's, you know, had a longtime goal to have such a meeting, um, and to do so without any sense of what an agenda is or any process is not negotiations and is not diplomacy. This is theater and pageantry. Um, and I think that's very dangerous. And, you know, I think we've we've seen some points coming from the White House over the weekend trying to say, well, we gave up nothing um, to have this meeting. And that is an entirely um, misconceived notion um, the fact of the meeting is enormous leverage of in and of itself. And to give that up without any sense of what the plan is, um, is, I think, a really, really big mistake. Well, I th you know, that's a very interesting analysis, Rosa. And it's the first time that anybody has suggested that Donald Trump's background running the Miss Universe pageant has actually affected his Korea <laughs> policy. So I'm just, I'm actually picturing this meeting, well played, um, David. you know, having one of two outcomes, right? One outcome is, you know, World War Three. that would be bad. The other outcome, and I can't decide if this would be just as bad, is that Donald Trump falls in love with Kim Jong-un and, and comes back saying things like, you know, in North Korea, they have at least 200,000 prisoned in hard labor camps. We should try that with our journalists and so forth. You know, <laughs> there is, you know, given Trump, uh, you know, and it sort of just depends whether whether what gets triggered in Trump is his competitiveness or his desire to have, you know, be part of a little club of repressive strongmen. Um, you know, if, if it triggers his competitiveness, then all bets are off and we're back to duck and cover. If it triggers his you know, hey, I, I need more friends like this, like Putin, like like Duterte in the Philippines, et cetera. Um, you know, it could all end in in jointly sponsored beauty pageants together. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and I don't know what to wish for here. Right. I mean, I mean, because I don't I I think I share I share the skepticism that Laura and Mia have already put out there about it, the likelihood that this leads to some actual substantive agreement on uh, on nuclear weapons, uh, I, I'm very doubtful of that. I think it is probably theater. The question is whether it is, you know, theater leading to complete tragedy or theater leading merely to further farce. And that is why you have the permanent <laughs> possession of the heavy crown of entropy. But let's 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 hear from the TR of optimism holder here, who has already tipped her hand that she has defended 
um, Trump's, uh, I, some might call it a decision, but I, I think it's more fairly characterized as a brain spasm. Uh, so I don't disagree with the points that any of the sisterhood have so far made. Right? I, I wait. Agree. Wait a minute. Why are you leaving me out of this? <laughs> oh, David, you're you Part are the, a member of the sisterhood. I'm an honorary member, notwithstanding. All right. So, okay. for deep state radio listeners who do not know this about the great David Rothkoff, he is the first. Uh, of my colleagues who is male, who refused to serve on panels that didn't have female participation. And therefore he, he has, is an honorary girl. And <laughs> therefore he is an honorary mis- member of the sisterhood. And in uh, fact, because, I am, I'm wearing a, we, a dress, right? As it, and no. the tiara. Oh, yes. oh man, I can't believe nobody knows. knows. Nobody Come knows. On, no visuals, no visuals. looks like. And here I was sitting, I was being so grateful that Rosa did not go down the terrifying path of suggesting Kim Jong-un in a swimsuit competition. Wow. And now I've completely nice. taken it back, Rosa. Thank you. Corey, also, can I just say what I've always wanted to say to you, which is that is a visual I could have done without. <laughs> I would like to invite all of you and and our listeners to try to determine what David's tiara looks like because I think David has the tiara of mystery. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I have the tiara. I think he has the tiara of mischief. I have the tiara of New Jersey, which is actually made out of a toxic hogi- waste dump. Something like aye, that. Aye, aye. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvanian Keep- over here is you know kicking in. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> The tiara of Pittsburgh. Anyway, go go on. So so so, so. back to back to the president's impulsive uh, choice. So I don't disagree with Mike that stability is one of the great attributes of America. Has been one of the great attributes of American leadership. That well, kiss it goodbye. A stabilizer of the international order, but I actually don't. I actually think that ship has sailed. Right, the Trump administration has already been so erratic that I'm not sure this will materially add to the the chains around allies' ankles um, if ships start sinking. I I think they're nervous and they're nervous for good reason because we are acting like. We are not a status quo power, and everybody counts on us to be a status quo power. So, so I agree with the point about stability, but that's not new. That's endemic to the Trump administration. Second, uh, the China alternative uh, maybe, but I think the Chinese are doing enough crummy stuff themselves that that most of their regional neighbors are still going to want to place their bets on the U.S. But we shouldn't call that into question. So I agree with that point. On giving a big victory to the North Koreans and getting nothing in return, I also agree with that, right? The parallel to the decision on going to North Korea is withdrawing from TPP without getting anything for it. Other American presidents have been invited to North Korea. They have, as Laura rightly pointed out, wanted to have a process that produces an actual good result, and they wanted to keep everybody lined up. So I I don't disagree with all that. Moreover, 
Rosa's very good point about, you know, the president caring about spectacle and not about substance and that this is a problem with a thin margin for error. I take all of those on board and I share them. All I was trying to suggest with my defense of the Trump administration is that I do think there are a couple of points about their Korea policy generally and about this announcement that they haven't gotten as much credit for as I think they deserve. The first is that it actually wasn't a surprise to the Trump administration, according to the New York Times reporting, American intelligence agencies had already briefed the senior American leadership about the contents of the North and South Korea meeting. You don't so you don't that, you don't include Rex Tillerson in that apparently. <laughs> but you know, in the hey, our government's really good at its job, even in difficult circumstances. I think that's a a good point. And no credit to the president who has undermined and disparaged the work of our intelligence professionals. So the first thing is, I think that deserves some notice. But the second thing is that President Trump, who has typically had such a tin ear for America's allies and their needs and been so uselessly provocative, in this case, it actually looks like he is letting our our treaty ally that would be most exposed to the negative consequences of this going bad have a leading role in the policy, not just in the shaping of the policy, but also in the limelight of announcing the policy. I would have preferred that that the national security advisor or the president himself were standing right next to the South Koreans when they made the announcement, but they are at least letting letting the ally most at risk from the policy the Trump administration is carrying out. And the last thing is, I actually, I don't agree with the administration's Korea policy. I think it rewards proliferation and calls into question the deterrent guarantee that's worked for the last uh, 50 years. All that said, they do have a clear, coherent whole of government policy where the uh, White House has made clear a credible use of military force and set a timeline for changing policy. The Department of Defense has quietly ramped up military operations. Uh, the Secretary of State has uh, kept America's allies on board, even when the president has undercut him at numerous stages and trying to get to negotiations. The UN ambassador has delivered a couple of very important rounds of Security Council resolutions. And they have been pretty, the Treasury Department has delivered new sanctions that bite the North Koreans. So they do have a whole of government policy that looks more stitched up than I think the president's giving given credit for. Well, there's so much there to unpack in that answer that was Fidel Castro-like in its brevity. I'm sorry, David. No, 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 no. I'm just kidding. That, that, really, the orange David Fidel Castro thing. <laughs> Castro-like thing about Corbyn. <laughs> You know, I guess I should be grateful you didn't say Chavez because at least Castro had a little bit of style. No, no he had a, had a lot, and and he could, and he was a ball player, right? So in any event, exactly, that too. 
but but let me turn to Mika and sort of say and just give you an opportunity to respond to whatever of that you would like to. But then what I want to do is I will sort of want to turn our attention now that this has all happened. We can lament it or not. We have to go forward. And I'd like to get each of your takes on what do you think all is likely to happen as opposed to what ought to happen? Because, of course, what ought to happen is you ought to have a government full of diplomats and a functioning process and people ought to be able to work out options and present them and negotiate the deal in detail and understand what the implications are and bring our allies into it and all the stuff that we know is not going to happen. So I'd like to focus on actually what is going to happen. Um, but Mika, if you'd like to start with anything Corey said, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, I I take Corey's point about the sort of instability folks may have already baked it in, but I do feel like there was a sense that even though Trump was saying things that were surprising and and somewhat erratic, that there was a sense that we had a very stable core of senior administration officials who were keeping normal functioning going, right? That the deep state was still very much hands on the wheel. And I think this is the first time where I feel like we've seen the president making an announcement that has substantive implications. It's very different than his tone at NATO, some of the other things that he said, the administration could dismiss as, oh, that's just tweets or that's just talk. This is something now that sets us on a different policy direction. And, and I do think that has some implications of suggesting that it might further disempower the worker level folks, because now what's very clear is if you take something direct to the president, and with, you know, wrapped in a bow of flattery, you're likely to get what you want, which I think makes it harder to pull these talks together. Because if the deep state bureaucrats are disempowered and don't feel like they actually can speak for their principle, it's hard to know how you set up the terms and conditions of this, of, of these talks. And so what I expect would happen is that you have a series of announcements and things happening that um, where it's unclear whether or not it really sticks, right? The president says one thing, State Department says another thing. We're not quite sure. And I don't know that that's a good environment to actually get through to talks in May as they've talked, as they discussed. You do know. You know it's not. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't want to say never because, like, at the same time, I do think engaging a diplomatic path here is really important. So I don't want to say never. Then it's also possible because I didn't think this was possible. So I don't want to discount things. Well, OK. And so I think that's a you know, there's a there's a fair point underlying it. There is an issue of. Need, Laura, because I think one of the things that drove this um, had nothing to do with Kim Jong-un and had more to do with Stormy Daniels. This is a president who needed a big win. And, you know, this thing walked in his office and he was like, OK, let's try this. He's not really big on consequences. Um, in fact, I think one of the first things he did when he got to be president was shut down the Department of Consequences. And he's just like, Okay, let's you know let's let's for, forge ahead on this whole thing because it may be a big distraction, which speaks not to a desire to resolve this issue, but of a personal need, a political need of his, and that may force it forward just simply because there is no Plan B. Well, I have made it a policy to not speculate on what goes on in the president's head or what may or may not motivate particular things that he does. 
Um, so I'm not going to speculate on on whether this is to distract or not. Uh, one point I would make, though, is that um, this is not the first. This didn't come out of nowhere. Um, one of the uh, we we I think you know are are so our attention spans have gotten so short by just the insane flow of um, developments on so many different fronts that you know we all recall recently comments about fire and fury and um, my buttons bigger than yours and all all of that really hot rhetoric. But um, as a candidate, um, Trump also suggested that he would meet with Kim Jong-un, um, that he would like to do that. And he teased that early on in his presidency as well. Um, so this is not something that necessarily came out of nowhere. And that has been one of, I think, the more puzzling aspects um, or more incoherent aspects of his approach has been a sort of vacillating all or nothing kind of thing. Either we're besties and and his sort of concession as a candidate was, I won't serve him some big fancy state dinner with a steak. We'll have hamburgers and fries or something like that instead. I mean, that was how he was going to treat the dictator, you know, at a lower level than, than somebody um who's a, a close ally. Um, so I don't think that... Yeah, but that it, was before we knew that when he ate burgers, it was in bed. <laughs> I t- okay, oh. more images I don't need. More <laughs> images I don't disgusting need. disgusting things that happen in Trump's bed. Okay, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> All right, but back to, back to the question, I think. And we can talk about, by the way, the motivations of... I mean, I think it does speak to some Amiga's points about like this idea that he's a one man show. He can do it himself. The only way things happen is by having the meetings himself, et cetera. And then there's the showy aspect, the reality TV presence of this um, that I think underpins some of that. But I want to go back to your question of how do we, you know, we are where we are and how do we mitigate the downside risks of, of the approach that's about to unfold, if we can call it an approach or the events that are about to unfold. And Mika is absolutely right in terms of, you know, the fact that there are there are experts on this issue, very, very good experts within the U.S. government and making sure that they are um, empowered and advising and playing a role in this is going to be critical. You know, the North Koreans have had the same negotiating team for decades. They remember every previous word that has been uttered is part of um, any U.S. North Korea conversation. They know how we work. Um, you know, they they know sort of um, our our operations um, very well, and we have amnesia when it comes to this. And I think that you know, making sure that, that we don't fall trapped to that is really important. But the other thing is, and Victor Cha in a very eloquent op-ed over the weekend um, about this issue, um, you know, said very clearly um, that that there's there's um, you know, one path for quite you know significant success and one path that leads us to, to war um, coming out of this. And I think that, um, you know, mitigating that that second aspect, that, you know, catastrophic failure of, you know, the problem with starting with a summit rather than ending with a summit is there's not really any runway after that. And so, you know, if this meeting doesn't produce what the president is hoping for, where do we go from there? And figuring out a way that we, working with our allies, working with our partners in the international community, um, you know, if this does not succeed, and there's a decent chance it won't, um, that we aren't left with the only option being war, I think is going to be one of the most important aspects of managing this process. Yeah, if I can just jump in on this, uh, I wanted to invoke the spirit of the the absent David Sanger uh, who has a terrific piece in the New York Times uh, talking about the 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 ghost, if you will, of the Iran nuclear deal and the impact it's likely to have on negotiations with North Korea. 
you know, and and I, I think that that's another reason to be very worried about the prospects of of a positive outcome. Obviously, Trump has made it a is his sort of signature foreign policy line to say that the Iran deal was the worst deal ever, and that he hates it and wants to destroy it, and he hasn't quite destroyed it yet, but it's sort of perpetually on the chopping block. Uh, and he's made it very clear that he may yet completely destroy it. Um, the the takeaway, presumably, for the North Koreans from that is going to be, number one, uh, any deal you make with the Americans, uh, he may feel free to tear up later. So why bother to make a deal? Um, you know, that you can make, you may make concessions, you may be willing to more or less stick to it, and it's always more or less, uh, but but you can't assume that the U.S. is a reliable partner. Um, and, and, and I think it also obviously creates a real dilemma for the Trump administration themselves, you know, having, having said that the Iran deal is, is the worst deal ever, terrible for the United States, et cetera, et cetera. And that was with a country that doesn't yet have <laughs> nuclear missiles pointed in our direction. Um, now, what possible deal could we get with North Korea, you know, other than sort of unilateral disarmament on their part, you know, and handing all their missiles over to Trump for his personal arsenal? You know, what could we possibly do that would look like a better deal than the worst deal ever with Iran? So it, it given that the, the shadow of Trump's comments on the Iran deal, it seems like it just squeezes out much possibility of a successful outcome on North Korea. Well, that's interesting. And that's David Sanger's analysis in The New York Times. I would point you to another analysis, which occurs in today's issue of Haaretz, the paper of the World Jewish Conspiracy. Um, that's not really fair, but um, by by another David, me, in oh, which it, David, in, in which the other David, I, I take I take exactly the opposite perspective. And by the way, I don't think they're not they're irreconcilable. In which I say. If Trump needs this deal and he proceeds with this deal uh, and he gets something because he needs to turn it into some kind of a victory, it's going to make it very hard for him to then walk away from the Iran deal. And, you know, right before the the decision to meet with Kim Jong-un, Bibi was in town and reportedly uh, the you know, Trump said, well, if I'm if we don't get big changes, I'm walking away from the Iran deal. Um, but this complicates things both ways, and it may make it more difficult for him to follow through with all of that because there really is no conceivable deal with North Korea that over the next several years isn't more dangerous, weaker, more porous, more risky than the deal that exists with Iran. What do you think of that, Corey? The error in your logic, my dear David, is believing that this is an administration that will feel governed by consistency, that that somehow will click in for the president, that if I walk on the Iran deal, it's going to be harder for me to get other deals, that people will doubt my credibility, that the cost may go up of having made a reckless choice in one area onto another. I'm deeply skeptical that that's actually going to affect White House decision making on this, because I feel like the president wakes up every morning and the world is new. 
Um, and <laughs> good point. Fair point. <laughs> which which is a nice way of saying he wakes up every morning, can't figure out where he is. But that's the eternal yeah, sunshine of the entirely empty mind. <laughs> so he, um, serious people, people who care about second and third order effects of government decision makings, people like all of us on this podcast worry about those things. And I think every every concern that anyone has raised in our discussion on this is totally valid. I just don't think the president's going to let himself be governed by it. I think he thinks he's a much better negotiator than he is. Uh, he is going to show up in North Korea with Dennis Rodman as his sidekick. National, and- National Security Advisor Dennis Rodman. <laughs> Exactly right. Um, And uh, what the North Koreans will have gotten, as Laura rightly pointed out, is the stature that they have always wanted. The only reason I'm inclined to not to not to join in the consensus is that I think I do see a parallel to the Iran agreement, but it's a slightly different one than folks have already mentioned. I favored the Iran deal because even though I didn't think it was a great deal, I thought that President Obama was pursuing a strategy that he had no intention of actually carrying out, that is, destroying Iran's nuclear program if they didn't sign a deal. And everybody knew he wasn't going to do that. And so I thought the deal was much better than the president being exposed as being unwilling to carry out his policy. I have a related concern on North Korea, which is if President Trump carries out his stated policy of a preventative attack on the North Korean program, it would be such a geopolitical disaster for the United States that I would rather have Kim Jong-un in a bathing suit with a Miss Wisconsin banner than I would like to see the president carry out his policy. (laughs) Miss Wisconsin? Wow. Wow. Very colorful. Mika, let me let me change the, the the focus of conversation just a little bit, because although it this pertains to to, to what, where we've been with it, but last week was a really good week for one guy in particular, and that's Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping, <laughs> in the course of last week, not only took a step towards lifetime service in his role to his country. Um, uh, uh, but he also, and, and by the way, got the surprising kind of quasi endorsement of the president of the United States for this move when that probably wouldn't have been what he would have expected from another president. He also got the United States, uh, watching the TPP ship sail without the U S aborted. Uh, and so the, seeing the U S role in the region diminished by that. And then he got this little gift of this North Korea meeting where, first of all, it reduces tensions. And secondly, there is no outcome where the North Koreans give up anything they've got without the United States and the South Koreans giving up something on the other side, which reduces, in fact, the um, presence of the U.S. at China's near border and 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 clearly from a security perspective that's a win 
And if the U.S. loses stature because of this, you know, that has a benefit. And if there's a deal that comes out of it, that has a benefit. So I would say in the Asia Pacific region, last week, was you know, the person who had the best week was Xi Jinping. And I just was wondering what your take was. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that this has actually been long term good for the Chinese and the Chinese are much better about playing the long game. But there's one other piece of this that I think we haven't talked about that's to Xi Jinping's benefit. And that's actually the tariffs, right? The global reaction to Trump's steel and aluminum tariffs and his right point, right? Like his the whole Mm -hmm. global recognition, the world recognizing that there's a global supply chain, that, it, that he's focusing on this very small piece to the, benefit, to the detriment of many of our other allied partners, and also the particular way in which they're choosing to claim this national security exemption in the tariffs actually weakens WTO enforcement, which we're going to want to use against China later on. So like, yeah, there's this yeah. whole other piece of this where Xi Jinping is, is sitting there and like, you know, just sort of toting up his wins for the week. I think it is actually really problematic for the U.S. in the long run. And I'm not sure if this is recoverable for us, you know, over the period of 10 years. Really important point. I absolutely agree with that. Another uh, winner, Laura, uh, is one of your favorites, um, and that's Vladimir Putin. We don't know what deal he had in the background here. But somehow he also managed to carry off a terrorist attack on the United Kingdom and not hear a peep of objection out of the United States of America, um, even as, you know, this thing unfolded around North Korea in a way that probably is to his benefit. And I just thought perhaps you'd like to comment on that. Well, thank you for that. In fact, just this afternoon, Theresa May has now attributed, um, said that the British government does believe that Russia was behind this um, use of a chemical weapon, essentially uh, a chemical weapons attack um, on um, British soil using a nerve agent. And there's another North Korea connection here, which is that um, North Korea last year um, used a chemical weapon, um, a nerve agent, um, to carry out an assassination on foreign soil. And for that attack, North Korea was rightly added to the list of re-added to the list of state sponsors of terror um, and has been met with several rounds of additional sanctions for that very action. And um, I think that it is um, odd at best that we've heard nothing from uh, President Trump about this. Um, And I think if we are to actually have any system that is about upholding uh, rules and norms and things like the Chemical Weapons Convention, um, that it will be extraordinarily important for enforcing those kinds of things that Russia be met with very, very clear um, consequences for those actions, um, assuming that, you know, this attribution um, to to Russia is, um, you know, is, is in fact, um, you know, confirmed. Um, and it does appear, appear to be that it's, uh, you know, we've, we've seen for a while now, um, Vladimir Putin pushing the envelope of, um, the kinds of actions he can undertake without being met with consequences. Um, and he's been pushing that envelope, um, for some time going back to the Obama administration, um, when he believed, um, that he was not being met with consequences, um, of a real, um, sort for, for his actions in Ukraine. Um, and then of course his actions here in the U S election. So I think that we are seeing an increasingly dangerous, increasingly reckless, um, uh, regime led by Vladimir Putin. That is, um, you know, simply, um, just blowing through a long list of, um, 
of norms um, that Putin is breaking. And I would just add one final point, which is that, you know, um, assassinations carried out by Putin's regime of um, of people they believe to be threats um, to his regime on foreign soil is, is not something new. Um, we've seen this before. Um, the use of a chemical weapon is new. And um, and I actually think that it's not an accident that uh, that the Putin regime chose uh, a nerve agent to carry this out. I think um, that very much testing us, um, with having in mind what North Korea had done and the consequences that North Korea met, would probably part of, of Putin's game here. Um, and, and he's kind of double daring us whether we're going to stand up in response. And I think it's really critical that we do. Another highlight of the past week was um, Vladimir Putin saying that perhaps the hacking was done by people who were geographically within Russia, but they weren't really Russians, Rosa. They're like you and me, David. They could be. Well, it depends. <laughs> if you're a Tartar uh, or a yeah. Ukrainian or a Jew. A Jew. Um, and, and, you know, so there he goes. And he says this thing, which is kind of repulsive on so many levels. Um, Not kind of, just yeah, repulsive. Yeah, just repulsive. Thank you. And... Not a peep out of the president of the United States. Well, because it the Putin's rhetoric is obviously very parallel to the kind of rhetoric that Donald Trump uses here. You know, the suggestion that Muslims and Mexican Americans and so forth are not real Americans. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, yes, of course, Putin's comments are completely appalling. The suggestion that there's this sort of blood or mystical Russianness, uh, which requires not only Russian citizenship, but also that you not be a member of a, you know, suspect group such as, you know, Ukrainians, Tatars or Jews. Um, but but, it you know, it's it's appalling. The really appalling thing is the degree to which Trump's own language really has embraced and paralleled that uh, just across the board. And and I might say, just going back to our discussion of the likely and indeed almost certain Russian complicity in the in the chemical weapons attack in in Britain uh, against Sergei Skripal and his daughter. Um, one of the things and, and this I, Trump is not solely to blame. I think the Obama administration was complicit in this as well. I, one of the things that there again makes it a little hard for us to credibly denounce it, even if uh, the U.S. administration had the will to do so, which it clearly doesn't is that there is enough uh, legal squishiness about the U.S. rationale for some of our drone strikes and targeted raids in foreign sovereign nations against people we consider threats that it, it makes it in turn extremely difficult for us to credibly distinguish our own actions from what most of the rest of the world, in the case of, of Russia and the chemical weapons attack, is clearly and appropriately calling an assassination and a murder. I mean, I, I guess I would disagree with that a little bit. I think that they are distinguishable. You know, our our drone strikes are, are t undertaken in places where host nation is unwilling or unable to deal with the problem. I mean, Sergei Skupal is a, somebody that the Russians actually traded to release, right? Like they 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 got back some of their guys. We so that we could get him out. It's not like, you know, if they really thought that he was a problem, they could have been like, we're not letting this guy go and he's just going to stay here in Russia. So it seems to me that it's violating the spirit of an agreement that they themselves already made for his release. Um, and I do think that, right, we're, we're not talking about a regime or a government, in the case of the UK, that's unwilling or unable to deal with someone if, in no. fact, they were a real, right, 
they were doing something that was violative of the international order. I, I think the the problem there, though, is 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 this. I mean, do I think that there's a difference between drone strikes under the Obama administration and Russian assassinations using you know radioactive materials and chemical weapons in in the UK? Yes, of course I do. You know, uh, in practice, when you look at them. Uh, you know, when you look at the facts of the situations, absolutely, of course, there's a difference. Um, the trouble is that the the legal theories advanced by the United States under Barack Obama have loopholes so big, you know, that you can drive multiple trucks right through them. And one of those loopholes is the unwilling and unable standard. You know, that when we say, well, the standard is that we get to kill people, we get to kill people in other countries when we decide they're a threat based on evidence that we're not going to share with anybody else and that has been examined only inside the executive branch of our country, not by the judiciary branch, et cetera, um, when we get to decide to kill people uh, and we will, but don't worry, we'll only do it if the country in which we're acting is unwilling and, and unable to take appropriate measures, there is no definition of what counts as unwilling or unable. It's entirely subjective. We haven't articulated a clear definition. The unwillingness and unableness of another country is also evaluated entirely by the executive branch based on evidence that is not made public. So, so yeah, I, do, I, I think in, in fact, were all the facts about all of these situations known, you can make a compelling case that unwilling and unable is true in the situations in which we have used force and couldn't credibly be claimed in this situation. But if I'm Vladimir Putin and I felt like making the argument, I would say, hey, look, additional evidence surfaced that indicated that this man and his daughter were in fact posing a continuing threat. They ha we hadn't previously assessed that that was to be the case, but new information surfaced. No, sorry, we can't share it to you with, with you. And uh, we assessed that Brit the British government was going to be unwilling and unable to do anything. And no, sorry, we can't share the basis for that assessment with you either. And we're sure you understand, because that's what you say. That's the problem. Well, uh, we don't have time to actually adjudicate, adjudicate <laughs> this here. Um, but no, no. But I think it's very important to discuss. And I think that these are important issues. We do know that the president of the United States is not going to be the one to press this issue um, because he loves Putin and because... Who knows? Maybe he hopes that other people will start dropping dead uh, who are associated with this. Uh, we'll just have to see. Um, uh, we have one minute left here. And I just wanted to turn to Corey. You know, every week, uh, you know, we get letters from all sorts of people who are out there, emails, um, uh, who listen to our show. And they have many helpful things to say. And I want to start incorporating them in a, in, in a show. And we got one from uh, a guy named Jasper. Uh <laughs> and and, and he, he wrote a number of nice things. But in here he said, on a recent trip to London, I had the chance between theater visits to hear the wonderful <laughs> Corey Shockey testify before the House of Lords. Ooh. Oh, my God. And then it goes on here. The one baroness on the committee asked, blah, blah, you blah, know, blah, blah, blah. You're making it worse by reading it out, David. Oh, my God. God, what is going on over there, Corey? Test I mean, is this the world you hang out in? And we're so lucky you continue to associate with us? No. What you need to understand from that is what a legion of magnificent deep state 
radio nerds we have all over the place. It has been such a great joy at the Brussels Forum here in London, um, at the number of people who will come up and say that David was exactly right, or that Rosa really does wear the thorny crown of entropy, (laughs) doesn't she? And it never fails to delight me. Well, delights us all, uh, as have all of you on this particular episode of Deep State Radio. I want to thank you, Mika, for joining us and and joining us for the next episode. I want to thank you, Laura, for coming back. Thank you to Rosa. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, all of you Deep State Radio nerds out there. Please come back real soon because we have more great stuff from folks like these four great people. Um, uh, And uh, we'll see you then. Thanks a lot. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.